are listening to The Book Judge, a podcast about books that you should read if you're interested in business. I'm your host, Conrad Chua. This is a curated reading list to give you a better grip on how to approach the complex issues that businesses face. Now, chances are you heard about this podcast through a post on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or some other social network. The companies that run these networks all started off small, but have grown so big that they've become a huge part of our everyday lives. The founders of these companies have also become globally recognized personalities. But what is the inside story of the CEO and company that's on its way to 1 billion users? Sarah Fryer gives us an insight into the story of Instagram, and in particular, its co-founder and CEO, Kevin Seistrom, in her book, No Filter. I love this book because it's a celebration of the great entrepreneur story, but it's also a very stark reminder about how difficult it can be for strong personalities to work together. The book also looks at the complex ways in which the growth metrics of these companies influence the lives of a huge percentage of the world's population. As we know from the episode on Meltdown, a complex system such as Facebook or Instagram can easily get out of control. The book starts with Seistrom. He came from a well-to-do background, went to Stanford, but he was not one of those academic stars. There was nothing in those early years to suggest this man was going to create one of the largest social networks in the world. He was someone who had wide-ranging interests and he took time off to learn photography in Italy. Seistrom's teacher took away his expensive camera and gave him instead a cheap Holger. I've used one of those before. It's a film camera that was incredibly unreliable. It would let in light at the back of the camera, and if you were lucky, you could get these beautiful effects when you developed the film. It also took square photos. If you're an Instagram user, you can see how these experiences gave rise to the iconic filters and square photos on the app. Seistrom soon met one of the men who would change his life forever, his co-founder Mike Krieger. They were like yin and yang. Krieger was always with his laptop, writing code, debugging software, and he'd become the technical brains behind Instagram. Seistrom would become the public face of the company, speaking to investors, celebrities, and being the leader to the employees. They worked perfectly together, like Wozniak and Jobs at Apple. And I think what made their partnership work so well is that each person had such different skills and also recognized they could never do nor want to do what the other person was good at. This was seen when Seistrom took paternity leave from Instagram and Krieger stepped up as interim CEO. He hated it. He never wanted to take Seistrom's place. Seistrom and Krieger first started an app called Bourbon that young urban dwellers, basically people like themselves, could recommend places to drink. It boggles my mind how so many apps we use today come from satisfying the needs of 20-year-old men who work in that Bay Area Silicon Valley corridor. Anyway, the app drew in some investors, but it wasn't going anywhere. So like you learn in every entrepreneurship course, the founders had to pivot. They looked at what people used the app for and realized the main feature was photos. Everyone wanted to take photos. And 3G was just taking off so people could share photos through their mobiles. And there you have it. That's the start of Instagram. It wasn't clear in those early days that 
Instagram was going to win the photo sharing app war. If you've been in business school, you might have seen that case study where you're asked to pick a winner from two unnamed companies. Most students chose what your lecturer would reveal to be hipstamatic, an app that has long since closed down, but at the time had growing user numbers. Very few students chose the other company, which was Instagram. But Seistrom and Krieger recognized the value that came from creating a community and making it fun and easy for users to come back to the platform. They started Instameets in various cities to build that sense of community and emphasize a simple operation. Instagram took off and quickly caught the attention of Mark Zuckerberg, who had a very different view about the company. A recurring thread in this story is how Zuckerberg was obsessed with crushing any competitor who could take away user time and by extension, advertising slots away from Facebook. At the time, Instagram, while growing rapidly, had only a mere fraction of Facebook's user base, um, which was getting close to 1 billion users. But there were already warning signs popping up all over Zuckerberg's dashboard. People were posting less frequently on Facebook, which meant fewer opportunities for Facebook to entice other contacts to visit the site. It had also been slow to move to a compelling mobile offering. Worst of all, it was losing its cachet with young users who were now drawn to Instagram. With an impending IPO, Zuckerberg needed to show potential investors that Facebook still had its mojo, and he made his move with a $1 billion acquisition of Instagram. I remember the day the acquisition was announced. As someone who had grown up in the dot-com bust, I thought it was a crazy number for a company that had only 20 employees, no revenue, no clear road to a business model. Instagram's only focus was to grow its user base. I predicted it would be an expensive mistake for Facebook, and the only winners from this would be Seistrom, Krieger, and the handful of investors lucky enough to get in on that last financing round. At first, I looked I was right. Facebook IPO'd and its shares started to drift down below its IPO price. Instagram was still growing madly, but there was no inkling of how it would earn money. However, over the course of a year, Zuckerberg's intense competitiveness pushed Facebook to embrace the mobile world. Some highly significant tweaks under the hood to Facebook's algorithms meant that it became an even more powerful tool for advertisers. At the time, I thought Facebook's game was about capturing user data and preferences and selling that to advertisers. It's clear now that Facebook was even more powerful. They could hyper-target users and over the course of time, change their behaviors to the benefit of advertisers. And we now can see it wasn't just the latest hip startup that was using these advertising tools, but there were foreign actors as well who were influencing the 2016 US presidential elections and the UK Brexit vote. This is the part of the podcast where I place the spotlight on one part of the book that you can use immediately in your business or in an interview or just to impress your business school friends. I call this the Did You Know section. Spoiler alert, Seistrom and Krieger left Facebook six years after the Instagram acquisition because they could no longer tolerate working with Zuckerberg. What I didn't know until I read this book 
is how deep the cultural differences ran from the founders to the respective companies. Facebook is a company that uses data and automation to monopolize user attention and time. Instagram, as Seistrom and Krieger saw it, was a handcrafted platform that would showcase user interests. Seistrom in particular wanted a high bar in terms of the quality of the photos and user experience. For years, he resisted Facebook's overtures to replace Instagram's people-curated discover pages with more automation. I thought it was fascinating that Instagram initially compromised with an algorithmic popular page, only to find that users were gaming the algorithm the same way they tried with Facebook. That page was quickly pulled and it reinforced the mindset in Instagram that they had a superior experience to Facebook. Even when it came to advertising, Instagram saw Facebook ads as crass and poor quality. They even had an internal fight over the display quality of the ads. There was also a cultural clash over the way Instagram successfully courted celebrities onto the platform. Seistrom was more than happy to meet celebrities, personally help them set up their Instagram accounts, and coach them in how to use it to connect with their audiences. Celebrities embraced Instagram in a way they never did with Facebook. These cultural differences soon led to deep suspicion and jealousy on the part of Facebook. Zuckerberg starved Instagram of vital headcount and even complained that Instagram TV's logo was too similar to his beloved messenger. Seistrom began to regret the role he played in persuading other founders to agree to be acquired by Zuckerberg. He thought that they would be allowed to operate as they had before, a company within a company. But that was just an illusion. When Seistrom and Krieger eventually left Facebook, Zuckerberg replaced them with a Facebook employee who no longer held the title CEO of Instagram, but was called head of Instagram. As Sarah Fryer puts it, there's room for only one CEO in Facebook. I love the way Freya looks at the consequences of growth metrics and design decisions on the behavior of a social network. Users were now under social pressure to put their perfect image on Instagram. Plastic surgeons performed operations for customers to get that Instagram look. People risked their lives to get an Instagram-friendly shot. And teenagers forensically scrutinized who liked or did not like their photos for signs of fraying social relationships. This pressure led many teens to abandon Instagram in favor of Snapchat. For all of Instagram's desire to have a more controlled user experience, it was constantly blindsided by user behavior. Eschewing the use of algorithms, Instagram was always fighting this losing battle against cyberbullying or the sale of opioids and drugs on its rapidly growing platform. And when Seistrom insisted on personally vetting each ad for their aesthetic appeal? Well, brands simply found celebrities or people with huge followings to use their products in Instagram posts. Instagram had the power to launch people's careers. Featuring a user on their explore page could lead to sponsorships and brand endorsements. And this is how the new career goal of Influencer Ma emerged. I have to make a confession. After reading this book, I took a look at my closet and tech cupboard 
I found that almost all my purchases from the last few years came from seeing a beautiful ad on Instagram or an influencer endorsement. Yep, I am a very, very shallow person. For every book I introduce, I have this segment called The Author Question. One question that I could ask the author. I found it interesting that only Seistrom and Krieger reaped the huge financial rewards from Facebook's acquisition. As co-founders, they deserved the fat stock options, don't get me wrong, but their first employees only enjoyed the financial benefits of a Facebook salary post-acquisition. Now, a Facebook salary is nothing to be scoffed at, but it definitely was not enough for these employees to get become angel investors or VCs the way the PayPal mafia did. So my question to Sarah Fryer is, what should employees in an early startup look for in their contracts to make sure they get some of that upside if the company were to be sold? I'll tweet this question to Sarah and let you know her reply. That's all for this episode of The Book Judge. You can subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And that now includes Amazon Music. So if you have an A-L-E-X-A, you can listen to this podcast with your smart speaker. While you're there, leave a rating. It helps others discover the show. If you have comments, you can tweet me at ConradChua16. Chua is spelled C-H-U-A. Or, very appropriately for this episode, you can send me a DM on Instagram. I am C-H-U-A-K-H there. Till next time, this is your book judge, Conrad Chua.